All right, grab your copy of the Word and uh, turn with me to uh, John 20. John 20, which may catch some of you off guard, but you'll see where we're going. Um, So today we are beginning this uh, trek through John's Gospel account. Um, And maybe you've read through the whole account. Uh, Specific passages are certainly familiar to most, if not all of us. Uh, But John's Gospel account is an interesting book that covers much of the life of Jesus, and he does so from a very unique perspective. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, He records his Gospel account much later than the other three Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, probably around A.D. 80 to 90, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, He doesn't include things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke include, such as the birth narrative. You'll see as we get to John 1 in just a minute, there is no birth narrative of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't include the Transfiguration, the Lord's Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, different things of that nature. Uh, specifically, however, John is more theological in his uh, more theological than historical in his writing, uh, focusing specifically and primarily on the deity of Christ, Jesus as God, as the Son of God. And so his book begins, as we'll see in a minute in John 1, without a, quote, warm-up to the person and the work of Christ. He just begins with the Word. Uh, And so just to kind of let you know how this uh, book is broken down, he begins the book with a prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. He finishes the book with an epilogue, kind of wraps things up in chapter 21. Uh, And then two main sections in the middle of the book, chapters, end of chapter 1 through chapter 12, he covers Jesus' teaching and ministry, focusing specifically on the, what he refers to as signs that Jesus performs. Uh, And Jesus is performing these signs in response to some claim that he has made about himself to prove that what he is saying is true, in a sense. Uh, And then the second half of that middle chunk uh, is covering the final week of Jesus. So chapter 12, mid-chapter 12 through chapter 20, he's covering the final week of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. He's not... His intention is not to give us an exhaustive account of Christ. He's trying to prove a point that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. He's writing to both Jews and to Gentiles, probably writing from Ephesus, which is a pagan cultural center of his day. Uh, His gospel account is very evangelistic in nature. There's a huge emphasis on the word believe. It's used over 90 times, uh, as we'll see in our text for this morning, as we'll see in the text that you're awkwardly turning to at the end of John's gospel here. Uh, However, the theological depth and the richness of this book helps us who are saved to grow and to deepen our walk with Christ. And so this is not just a new believers type text, because often when someone first comes to faith in Christ, where do we direct them? You want to learn more about Jesus? Go to John's Gospel. It's simplistic in nature, uh, easy to read, easy to follow, fairly easy to understand, but there's so much richness here that those of us who are saved who are recently saved or have been saved for some time, will benefit from the the text here. So look with me at John chapter 20 and verse 30. What we want to do is to begin with the end in mind. And so before we look at John 1, let's consider how John kind of wraps up the account of Jesus in John chapter 20 verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. So what he has recorded, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing 
you may have life in his name. It's glorious when a biblical author gives you very clearly their purpose in writing. And so right here in John 20, 31, he says, I'm writing this so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you will have life in his name. And so our desire as we walk through this book is twofold. One, if you don't know Jesus, that you'll come face to face with the reality, the beauty, the glory of Jesus from the scripture, specifically from John's gospel account, and you'll repent and believe, just as John is saying here. And secondly, if you do know Jesus, that you'll grow in your understanding of who he is and how he works in the world, and that you'll be compelled to worship and your life will be impacted by the truth that we'll see throughout the weeks that we cover John's gospel account. And so we pray that you'll either either come to faith in Christ or that your faith in Christ will be deepened and strengthened. So we're beginning with the end in mind. What are what is our whole point here? Our whole point is John 20:31 that by understanding these things that are written we will believe that Jesus is the Christ and he's the son of God and that by believing we may have life in his name. So back to John chapter 1. That's where we'll begin today. John chapter 1 we'll read verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, as we study this text, help us, to, help us to see Jesus, the living word, through the written word. We confess our need for you to open our understanding, open our uh, discernment in interpreting the scriptures rightly. And then, Lord, give us the, fa- give us the faith to obey. Lord, I pray that... If someone here doesn't know you, that coming to the reality of Jesus today, they would repent and believe. Lord, I pray for those who are here who do know you, that we would be encouraged, we would be challenged in our walk with Christ as as we see fresh, new, again, the beauty, the glory of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. So a few statements that we'll point out here from John's opening uh, words here in in part of the prologue. First, he identifies Jesus as the Word. So he he clearly says in in verses 1 through 3, Jesus is the Word, which relates to, so we're going to kind of use verse 14 to help us understand verses 1 through 13 uh, to an extent. In verse 14, you see John records, and the Word became flesh. And he begins his account, verses 1 through 3, referring to this Word. 
And so he, John intends for the whole book, the whole account that he records, to be viewed in light of the truth of verse 1. And the truth is clear here that Jesus is God. In the first 18 verses, all of the prologue, Jesus is referred to in one way or another, either by name or by pronoun, 23 times. So he's clearly pointing all of his attention, all of his reader's attention to, uh, to the Word being the Lord Jesus. And so verse 14, he says, the word became flesh. The, the very Son of God became one of us. We'll unpack that phrase a little more next week. But he took on flesh. But who is this word? Who is Jesus? And some of the language that John uses here help us, helps us to understand who Jesus is and, and some of his attributes, some of his character traits. One, we see that Jesus is eternal. It, the beginning line is, in the beginning was the word. Pointing to the fact that Jesus is eternally preexistent. So, Kind of the way the language works here, before the beginning began, Jesus was. Which for us is difficult. Because we're all limited by time. We think in the context of time. We have watches. I can touch my iPad here and the time pops up at the top to make sure I don't make this sermon go incredibly too long. Just a little bit too long is okay, but we don't want to go incredibly too long. Time. Jesus, however, is not constrained by time he in the beginning was the word and what john is doing here we'll see this a couple times in the language that he uses he's connecting a dot all the way back to the actual beginning so remember how genesis 1 begins in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth right and so when john comes and he records his account of the life of jesus he connects a dot for the reader back to that account from genesis and says in the beginning was the word jesus is eternally pre-existent and so, before Genesis 1-1 began, Jesus was. So, Jesus is eternal. Also, Jesus is one who communicates. He identifies Jesus as the Word. And it is the nature of God to reveal Himself. And He does so through the Word, specifically through the Lord Jesus. Another dot that, that, Jesus is, that, that John is using to connect here for the reader is this idea of Word in reference to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. So, in the Old Testament, we read statements phrases verses such as psalm 33 6 which points to the fact that god's word is powerful in creation by the word of the lord the heavens were made you think of the creation account from genesis 1 god speaks and what happens it happens creation begins to unfold and god said and there was so this creative reality of the, the communicated word the word gives revelation from god jeremiah 1 4 now the word of the lord came to me the Word speaks of things like deliverance, Psalm 107.20. He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. In relation to this idea of Jesus as the Word as it relates to the Old Testament, D.A. Carson wrote, God's Word in the Old Testament is this powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that Word in Jesus makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of His own Son. And so God reveals His character. God reveals who He is through His Word. And the ultimate, expre ultimate expression of this Word is Christ. The ultimate expression of God is Christ as God. And God's Word expresses and reflects God's mind, revealing God to man. And John is communicating to two audiences. One audience would have, would have understood th this use of Word in the language of the New Testament as an assertion of divinity, his divine personhood, this authority. But then the other mind would have understood this word as, uh, as, as an expression of his, uh, of his uh, absolute authority. And so you have 
divinity and authority wrapped up in one word, namely, word. Now, this is important for us because oftentimes we will say things like, we need a word from the Lord. Lord, we need a word. Lord, we want... Will you show yourself to us? And he has primarily shown himself to us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And so as we're tracking through John's gospel account over these next several weeks and months, we are seeing the word of God. We, are, we will see God communicating himself to us, namely through his son. And so Jesus is eternal. Jesus as the word communicates, Jesus as the word also is divine. The next phrase here, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is pointing out here that Jesus is not a God, he's not like God, he's not sort of God, he's not kind of God. He actually is God. He is God. The language literally, the word order in the original language is exactly translated, and God was the word. For that's clunky in English, so we change the nouns around and say, and the word was God, but literally, and, and God was the word. And the word order there is important, reminding us that Jesus is God. And Jesus is consistently affirming his deity in John's gospel account. He says things like John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Remember, the disciples say, hey, show us the Father. Jesus says, look at me. Asserting his divinity. And so the word was God. But then also we see as the word Jesus is creator. So we have verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. A repeat of the first phrase. And then verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1.2. Through him also he created the world. The rich Christological passage in Colossians one. Verse 16 and 17, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so Jesus is the active agent in the work of creation. And so this Jesus, upon whom John twenty thirty one we are to believe, is not just a mere man. He's God. He's God. But then, if you look at verse 14, John says, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And dwelt among us. We'll unpack that word dwelt a little more next week. But the idea there is that like we saw him. We touched him. We were with him. We witnessed him. It's what he repeats in his letter in 1 John. We've held with our hands. We've seen with our eyes. And so he starts using other key themes here. In verse 4 he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There are four words in particular that, that come out of these two verses that are recurring themes throughout the, the gospel account, and they are life and light and world and darkness. And so he says in verse 4, In him was life. In Jesus was life. Now what is this life that he's referring to? Well, understanding the gospel of John according to the gospel of John and the greater teachings of Scripture, he's not referring here to merely physical life. He's referring here to spiritual life. He says, he, he says things later like in John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so what, what John is doing here is reminding the reader and us that Jesus is the source of life. In him was life. 
A few chapters later, he's going to say, for as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. So in Christ, we have life. In him was life. But then he puts this clarifying phrase here, and the, and the life was the light of men. And the life was the light of men. So he goes from light and life, and he says, and the life is the light. And so what he's doing here is he's connecting another Old Testament dot. Think, what's the first thing that God spoke into existence? Light. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The first creative act of God was for his son to bring forth light. And what does this light do? Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Light versus darkness, who wins? Light every time. And so darkness is both the absence of light, but in a theological sense, darkness is also the, the evil system of this world. We see that further on in verse 10, where he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, because of darkness, as we'll see in a minute. So why does John here in verse 4 equate life with light? Because he's comparing life and death to light and darkness. Because the reality is you don't know you're in darkness until the light shines into that darkness, just as people don't know they are dead spiritually until they see the light of the gospel of Christ. And so in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so when death is replaced with life, also darkness is replaced with light. And so then he, this is kind of a unique insertion here, verses 6 through 8, he shares just a a brief testimony of a witness to the light. And this is John, not the writer of the gospel account, but John the baptizer. As we'll see in just a few more sermons, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about that light. What is John the baptizer's purpose? You see it there. He came as a witness to bear witness of that light. Verse 7, that all might what? believe that all might believe in him second corinthians 4 6 for god who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ you see when we're saved we're transformed we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light and until we are transferred into the kingdom of light we really don't even know that we're in darkness Because this is a spiritual reality. This is not a physical reality. And John says, and that life was the light of men. In him, in him alone, exclusive. There is no other source of life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so there's John the baptizer, as we'll see in a couple weeks, out in the wilderness doing crazy things, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his whole purpose is for those who repent to actually believe on the one that he's testifying about giving witness to that light that all might believe through him which brings us to the third point and it is the the reality that jesus as god and as man demands a response jesus demands a response look at the language of verse 14 john says we've seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth And in verses 9 through 12, he starts explaining how this interchange between Christ and the world happened. And so we essentially have two responses to Christ. The response of rejection or the response of reception. We either reject or we receive 
Christ. There is no neutral here. There is no indecision. To not receive Christ is to reject Christ. It is either yes or no. It is either in or out. It is either on or off. There is no middle ground here. And so in verse, verse 9, what John is doing is he's equating the coming of the light of Jesus into the world with the light invading darkness at creation. Look at verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Reminds us that, that there is some awareness of God in the mind and the heart of every man, Romans chapter 1. John Calvin said, There is no man on whom some perception of the eternal light does not reach. So everyone has at least an awareness of this light. And so we'll ask two questions. One, what does it mean to reject Jesus? Secondly, what does it mean to receive Jesus? First, what does it mean to reject Jesus? Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. So two phrases there, verse 10, the world did not know him. And then in verse 11, his own people did not receive him. To help us understand this, turn one page over and if you have a printed text to uh, chapter 3 and verse 18. Chapter 3 and verse 18 helps us, to, helps us to understand what rejection of Christ means. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Light has come into the world, namely Christ has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Those in darkness love the darkness. Why? Because when the light is shined, it shines into the darkness, evil is exposed. And the only reason someone wants out of darkness, or, just to be clear, the default position for every person is darkness, right? That's how we come into the world, in darkness, because of sinful nature, because of depravity. We are dark. So the only reason that someone in darkness wants out of the darkness is that God creates a desire in him or her to do so. It's not so much that we start seeking after God, it's actually God starts drawing us to himself. This is Romans 3.10. None is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks after God. We're enemies of God, we're rebels toward God, we are orphans. And so our default position is that of darkness and dead. And so to reject Christ is to remain in that darkness, to remain in that dead state. So what does it mean to reject Jesus? It's to remain in darkness. So follow-up question, what does it mean to receive Jesus? Well, look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 12, beautiful conjunction, but. But, end of verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. Similar to Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. And so, but to all who did receive Him, who are these who receive Christ? Those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus. And this all here, the word all, be careful, because this is not like a blanket statement of salvation. This is not universalism. It's very clearly all who actually receive Christ. And it's 
Kind of the illustration that helps us understand this is, is similar to a doctor saying a particular vaccine works for, say, the flu. This will work for all cases of the flu, but we realize that that vaccine only works for the flu to whom that vaccine is applied. So it works for all, but it's only applied to those who receive that vaccine. So, but to all who did receive him, those who repented of sin and trusted in Christ. And to go on in verse 12, who believed in his name, those who expressed faith toward God to save their souls. The language there is intentional, who believed in his name. Did not just believe good things about Christ. Did not just believe good stories about Christ. Did not just have good feelings about Christ. But believed in His name. Believed in the very nature and character of God expressed in this living word, the Lord Jesus. In chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus says it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but He has passed from death to life. And so for those who receive him, those who believed in his name, going on there in verse 12, what does he do? He gave the right to become children of God. (laughs) He gave the right to become children of God. And so God adopts those who receive him, who believe in his name, into his family. And believers come become part of the covenant people of God. So how do we do this? We repent of sin, we submit to Christ, and we trust him to save us. We confess Him as Lord of our life. We confess Him as Lord over our lives. But specifically, and even theologically, how does this actually happen? Does it happen by walking in an aisle, shaking my hand, saying something after me? Well, verse 13 helps us to understand how this actually happens. How does this receiving Jesus happen? Verse 13, Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, in this text, John lays before us two uh, seemingly contradictory realities. We see those who reject him in verse 10. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. In chapter 3, we see that as well. Those who are under condemnation, but refusing Christ. But then in verse 13, we're, we're reminded that salvation is of God. Salvation is of God, who were born, verse 13. Referring to the children of verse 12 who have believed on the name of Christ. And specifically, to help, to help us understand this, this idea of being born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where he tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why? Because unless one is born again, he remains in darkness. He remains blind. And so he uses these clarifying statements. He's born not of blood, which reminds us this is not natural descent. His own people rejected him. The Jewish people rejected him in context. And so this is not of blood. This is not of natural descent. It can be applied more widely. Like you don't come to Christ's family. Just because mom and daddy were good Christians doesn't make you a good Christian. Just because son or daughter is a good Christian doesn't make you a good Christian. Just because you're surrounded by Christians doesn't make you a Christian. We're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. This is not, we'll take both of these phrases, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. This is not just merely human decision. Salvation is not ours to achieve. It's not based on things like good works. It's not based on things like self-effort, good morality, 
knowledge, even theological knowledge. Outside of Jesus, all of these leave us among those who reject Christ in darkness. So how does this happen? The last three words of verse 13, but of God. But of God. How do we receive Christ? It's of God. God's act of grace leads people to receive Christ, to believe in His name, and to become children of God. And He does this by invading the darkness of our lives with the light of the Word. Namely, the gospel of Christ. And God does this because He wants to. He saves us because He wants to. James 1.18, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth. John's going to put it this way later in, in his letter, 1 John chapter 5. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And so, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so when we are saved, we receive Him, we believe in His name, we become children of God, we are born of God. And we have to remember, before that moment, we were blind, we were in darkness, we were dead, but God awakened us to the beauty and the glory of Jesus, the life that is the light of men. So if you are saved, and look, you may have been saved as a young child. You may not have actual memory of that conversion moment, but There's a firm conviction within your heart and mind today that you are saved. What God did is invaded the darkness of your life with the glorious light of Jesus through the gospel, communicated in some form. We looked at that several weeks ago. The gospel is necessary for us to be saved, Romans 10. And so God in His grace invaded your life with the gospel. And the light did what to the darkness? penetrated and dispelled the darkness christ is the light in him was life and life was the light of men and so when he steps into darkness darkness dissipates and so then we can say that we were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god we've been born again born again of god by god and through god and ultimately for god Jesus put it this way, chapter 12 and verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We've done a really good job, especially in the American church, to complicate salvation. We've done a pretty good job of making what is incredibly simple in the scriptures incredibly complicated. We've turned it into a formulaic system where it's A plus B equals C. Do this, do this, do this, and you will achieve your salvation. Where Scripture presents it as, no, when we believe in His name, He gives us the right to become children of God. And we are born of God. He does this work in us. How does He do this work? What is our response? Our response is very simple. It's believe. It's believe. It's not dependent on me praying the right words. It's not dependent on me being in the right place. It's not dependent on on anything except God drawing me to Himself, invading the darkness of my life with the light of the glorious gospel and giving me grace to repent and believe. 
which reminds us that salvation is completely the work of God. That's how John begins this story of the life of Jesus, reminding the reader, in the beginning was the Word. This is all about Jesus. Your life, my life, all about Jesus. All about Jesus. And so, question, are you in darkness? Are you in darkness? What a travesty for any of us to walk through week after week after week after week learning about Jesus from John's Gospel and not know Jesus. And unfortunately, that is actually possible. It is actually possible. We can walk through sermon after sermon, teaching after teaching, conversation after conversation, scripture after scripture, and not know Christ. And so are you in darkness? Well, the teaching of Scripture this morning is that your simple response is to believe on the Lord Jesus, the eternal Word of God, and have life in His name. Forsake the good morality you have, or the religious accomplishments you have, or theological knowledge that you have, or just fill in the blank in whatever, whatever, with whatever that you're trusting in in this life. Because unless it's Christ, it's darkness. But, since it is Christ, church, we can walk in light. We can live in light. And we can live in ways that are incredibly contrasting toward the darkness of this world. And even as God is purifying us, making us more like the Word that we see in verse 1, the Lord Jesus, the light of the Gospel is constantly penetrating to those remaining dark areas of our hearts and minds. Right, Those crevices in, in our souls where we just kind of put a padlock over and we're like, hey, just don't mess with that part. And the gospel just explodes in there and reminds us that, no, it's Christ. I need Christ. I need Christ. I, I can't do this on my own. I can't win this on my own. I can't beat this on my own. I can't fight this on my own. It is Christ. And the eternal word of God is ours. Look at verse 12. And we'll pray. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Are you a child of God? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And brother, sister, if you are a child of God, you've been born of God. And let this be an encouragement to all of us this morning. That rebirth cannot be revoked. Because He's the one who's accomplishing this in our lives. He's more concerned about His glory than we are. And so He will use our lives to glorify the Lord Jesus. And so may we believe on that and live in a way that reflects the truth of Scripture. Let's pray and we'll sing. Father in heaven. Thank you for the light of the gospel that shined into our lives. Lord, the, the truth, the reality um, that in Jesus is life and that life was the light of men. Lord, thank you that we're born uh, not of our own accord, but by you. And Father, I, I pray if 
someone this morning doesn't know you, that as we're singing, they would simply repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this magnificent demonstration of the deity of Christ that John writes. And may the truth of this passage have an impact on the way we do life every day, the way we think about Jesus, the way we think about one another, the way we think about the world, the way we think about darkness and light. Lord, we love you. For those of us who are your children, thank you for adopting us into your family, for naming us as sons and daughters, for loving us so that we could in turn love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.